So this evening, I would first like to look at selfing and then move on to love and compassion. Because in a way, if it was just about an abstract idea, this self and no self, and people have asked a lot of questions about it. But to me, what is interesting in this idea of self and no self is more not as an idea, but as how does that impact on our daily life? And that's what I kind of want to look a little at first. How does it, what I would call actually selfing. I think in a way we're constantly selfing, that we want it or not anyway. And in a way, to me, it seems the Buddhist path is about possibly what we could call a positive selfing. And actually, it's in order to counteract a kind of negative, limited selfing. So what, what happens when, in a way, this negative, limited selfing is in action in our daily life? It seems to me the first thing that happens in that selfing is this feeling that actually we are the center of the universe. <laughs> and so in a way we seem to have this kind of idea and, and then I think it can make us very self-conscious because we feel that the whole world is revolving around us. The whole world is looking at us. The whole world is doing what it does because of us. The problem with that is that actually everybody else feels the same way. <laughs> so you have all this center of the universe thinking they it. When actually only I am my little center of the universe. And this is it. So my universe is quite restrained. And, and I think this is very interesting to look at how we feel that people do things because of us. So I think it's so fascinating to look how we so self-referential. And actually, to stop a minute when we feel this, like a, so self-conscious, to actually remember they also feel exactly the same. I think this is very essential to remember the equality in the selfie. That I think is very essential. And then it helps us to dissipate that self-consciousness. Then I mentioned it very briefly already. The next thing about the selfie, which I think is quite painful, is when we reduce ourselves to one of the conditions that form us. And often we seem to do that. We might just reduce ourselves to a thought. And so in a way, kind of categorize ourselves, just kind of our whole identity is reduced to one thought. And a few months back, I was finishing a book and I was doing some correction happily on my little computer. It took me two weeks. 
And then I thought I could do something with the computer, which actually afterward I realized I could not do. And my whole correction disappeared forever after. And my first, I could see that the, my first reaction could be, I am stupid. <laughs> Which then you generally quickly go on, I am always stupid. <laughs> so you have this kind of endless stupidity kind of <laughs> in front of you. Which is quite disheartening. And instead, I thought, uh-uh. This, is, this was a little stupid and reckless. <laughs> you will not do it again. You can learn from that. So by not reducing myself to that thought, then actually I was able to move on. I was not kind of you know, spending days thinking, you know, I was so stupid, which would not have helped making the correction whatsoever. Because it's a very static. This is the thing with this limiting to one thought. It's very static. You don't move from that position. Or we can, in a way, get caught, reduce ourselves, fix ourselves to just one emotion. And I find it so interesting when people say, I am an angry person. And this is the way I am. I am not going to change. And I find it so interesting because they seem to say that they're always angry, 24 hours a day, and they will be forever after. It's kind of like they reduce their identity to just that one emotion. The same when I think it's a little, in a way, nearly unjust or more uncompassionate when you have somebody say to another person, oh yeah, that one is sad. Like, you know, he's a really sad person. I mean, he's always sad. You know, and don't get close to him because, yeah, really, you know, then you become sad too. And it's kind of, again, I mean, the person might be sad because of certain condition, but the person is not always like that. And I think this is a danger not only do you, we reduce ourselves in that selfing, we actually also reduce in the selfing of others, which I think is as dangerous, if not more dangerous, because I think it's truly uncompassionate to do that to ourselves or others. And also we can fix ourselves on just one, one physical uh, description, one physical part of ourselves. Recently, I was with uh, somebody who was in New Mexico, and there was this extremely tall fellow. And so I always look up to him, and he looked down to me. And it was very funny. <laughs> I could really see I was like kind of up there. And it was very interesting sensation. Because actually, I don't feel I am small. I might appear small. <laughs> but I don't feel small because I am the tallest in my family. <laughs> so in a way, to see how, in a way, no physical characteristic is intrinsic and absolute. It is the way we will feel about it is very relative 
to the other conditions around us. So to be very careful if we reduce just ourselves to one physical aspect. But then another thing which is more, even more interesting we do with selfing is when we actually attribute a quality to the self. Like somebody is good, somebody is bad. I am a good person, this is a bad person. And then we, in a way, fix the person. So they're, in a way, supposed to be always good. And if they do anything bad, it's no, 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 you know, no, 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 no. Or if you have a bad person, if they do something good, no, 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 this is a mistake, you know. <laughs> error, error here. But actually, the fact that they're good or bad is just totally how it comes upon inner and outer condition. It is a very relative. It is not an identity. And that's why personally I find it, in a way, inspiring and humbling to read biography, like the biography of Gandhi. I really admire Gandhi. He's a very great kind of inspiration for me from a young age. But if you read his biography... Actually, the way he was with his family and his children is a little dodgy. You know, it's, and he doesn't have such good results, and I won't go into it. And it is the same. The other day, we were talking about uh, Shunru Suzuki, who again is an amazing, wonderful teacher. And that's why I think to read the, his biography, Crooked Cucumber, is wonderful. Because you see that in Japan, his life, in a way, is a tragedy. I mean, it's so tragic. Personally, when I read it, I felt it was so tragic. And so it kind of, again, like Stephen does with the Buddha, it kind of puts the, the, the man and the practice in a whole context of a life which cannot be reduced to one quality. And recently I had, was teaching in Sweden, and I go there every year, for a few years now. And this time there was this lady I see every time. And she came to the interview. Oh, yeah. You know, I said, how are you? Well, I meditate. But pff, what's the point of meditating? <laughs> well, I could do basketball, but I prefer meditating, really. So, <laughs> but I don't expect much from it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I said, but has something happened recently? And she said, Yeah. I went to India, and I went to stay with my great teacher, and I love my teacher, and he was the greatest teacher, and I followed him for 15 years. But, pff, yeah, he's not a good teacher. No. And I said, what happened? She said, he's not compassionate. So if he's not compassionate, then meditation doesn't work. <laughs> this was very interesting. And so I said, but what happened? She said, well, I had a great difficulty, really, really great difficulty, and I was in great pain, and I went to him, and he said, just let it go. <laughs> this is not compassionate. And so, again, it's interesting, because in a way, you fix a person. The person must be compassionate. And yes, he was, personally, I would say he was not very kind of skillful, definitely. <laughs> she needed something else at that moment. But it's interesting how... Either you have it or you don't. You know, instead of kind of fixing the person, expecting them to always be this way. And to see that we, 
multi-perspectival. There is so many kind of part of ourselves. So how can we reduce ourselves to a quality we attribute to this self? It is the same with um, negative. You know, when somebody is bad. Many years ago in England, I was with this kind of uh, engaged uh, people, socially engaged people. And uh, suddenly the woman says, Margaret Thatcher is evil. (laughs) (laughs) And I could not agree. I mean, you know, she she did, did not always have good ideas. She did not always do good things. But I couldn't see how she could be evil. I, you know, she was, I, I really could not see it, how you could define a person in that way, just by that adjective, just by that quality. That's all, the, all she could be. She could not just be that. So in a way, to, to see that, I, I have this, I, I receive regularly this newsletter about um, these uh, people in England doing yoga and meditation in prison. And I love reading the newsletter because you have all these letters from the prisoners who have benefited from the yoga and meditation. And a lot of the time it's like you have the feeling that they're discovering themselves. For 30 years there were this really kind of heavy duty, aggressive, kind of drug addict, kind of really in pain and violent and everything, kind of, kind of like lost to themselves, it seems to me. And then they do a bit of meditation and a bit of yoga, and they kind of say, wow, I, am, I can be different than what I have been. I can experience, that's what I find interesting. They experience themselves differently. Their feeling about themselves is different. And they kind of, ah, oh, I am, it's not nearly like they could, can be someone else. It's not they're not someone else, but they kind of, in a way, take away that fixation, that kind of, in a way, that badness that define them, that identify them. And then they discover, in a way, the goodness, the potential within themselves. Then another aspect of the selfing is the fact that it's, that I think is biological. This kind of feeling that we have to protect ourselves. I often have the feeling that we encase in walls of self-protection. We kind of, in a way, always looking out in case somebody is going to attack this precious, precious self. Somebody is out there to get us. I think this could be very much a biological fear when there were these famous dinosaurs, you know, even though we were not there yet, but it's kind of, you know... <laughs> in the gene or wherever it's supposed to be. So we kind of, and in a a way, we kind of have the feeling of self-protection. It doesn't mean that we don't have to protect ourselves deep in the night in a bad place. But when actually we feel quite safe, you know, I think in a lot of our modern world, we are relatively safe, so to speak, up to a point. And we have so much fear. And to me, this is, and again, one of the, negative aspect of the selfing, that self-protection which actually cut us off from the world, from relating in an open manner to the world. And then the last one is, in a way, this feeling of self. 
the feeling that here, about here, there is kind of something, and only it's written Martine. And, and that, in a way, would not be any problem. That there is, I think, not too much problem with that. But the problem is that we feel there is something here, and then everything that happens to us then stick to it. So we can have all these kind of things sticking to us. So, you know, it's very hard for us to move around this kind of, you know, jungle of stuff that we kind of, is here. And one, one interesting one is words. You know, somebody, maybe five years ago, say something to you, which was unpleasant. It was so unpleasant. How could they say that to me? So you let it pass. Three years later, and they said this. You know, it's kind of like you have all these kind of pins, and kind of time to time you kind of, you know, kind of twiddle them. So a little blood comes out, you know. <laughs> you know, they, you know. And, but if you look at it, I mean, the words, it was gone five years ago. And actually, there is nowhere where it can stick. I mean, you can encounter the word in the moment. You can be present to it. You can listen to it. You can do something with it. You can let go of it. There is all kind of thing you can do with words or whatever else. But I think one thing we possibly don't need to do is stick it there to kind of, you know, take it back later. So to notice that, that is a strange feeling where kind of, it's kind of like a pin, you know, where the, the air, um, people who do uh, clothes, sewing clothes, they have this kind of, kind of spongy thing where the pins get stuck, you know, and trying to notice if we can, you know, unpin it or possibly dissolve the sponge bit to kind of, in a way, be more present, more kind of open, so that we're going to not so fixing, not so limited. And why not so fixing? Why not so selfing? Because then our potential can really blossom. To me, this is, in a way, my main problem with selfing. That as soon as we self in that way, we limit ourselves, limit our creative potential. And I think, if I think of myself, when I was at school, I was terrible at French writing, at writing French composition. I used to talk terrible marks and really kind of, you know, like I would have never thought with my marks in uh, school that I would ever write a book. Because really, I was really pretty bad then. And then one day, when I was in Korea, somebody said, oh, you're translating all this talk. Why don't you do a book with Stephen? And I thought, why not? But if I had thought I can't write a book, then I would have said, no, 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 I can't do that. And then later on, I met somebody. And she said, oh, you know Buddhism? I know ecology. Why don't you help me do a book on Buddhism and ecology? And I thought, why not? But I could have thought, oh, no, no, I can't do this. I can't do this. Notice the difference. If you say you can't do this in a way you don't dare, you can actually, there is no movement. You cannot start. Well, if you kind of say, okay, let's try. You know, the worst that can happen is that it doesn't work. And this is not the end of the world. So in a way, seeing how the fixing, in a way, stop the potential.
And this, in a way, brings me to this love and this non-attachment. And I would say I have a little trouble with the word attachment and non-attachment. Because I think in, uh, in the West, there's a very definite kind of, you know, often you hear in spiritual circle, I must not be attached. And there was this kind of wonderful article a few years back in Tricycle, a short article, lovely article about these ladies and our various non-attached Buddhist boyfriend. And so they were so detached that, you know, generally kind of, you know, they disappeared. Kind of, you know. <laughs> I mean, they were so detached, it did not seem there was any caring. It was kind of like, you know, and in a way, I think it's, we have to be very careful not to use this non-attachment in order not to relate because of that fear of that self-protection. To me, this is not a good excuse. Because for me, in a way, I would say love is very important. I think as human being, there is this inner quality of aloneness, but also there is this quality of connection, of relationship, and which really nurture us. And I think it's very important to love ourselves, to love others, but not as an abstract idea, but as really experiencing that warmth that comes from loving another, sharing time with that person, appreciating them. Can we in a way loving life, loving the world in which you are? I think this is very essential. And I could see this. Again, before my grandma died, she was really, I mean, she was 92, so she really kind of was getting old. And she was kind of, a brain function and various things was kind of a little weakening. And before that, one of the great joy of her and me was when I came back from travel. I would come back from my travel, open the door, Grandma, I am here. And she would lit. Ah, you're here. This is wonderful. So she would have this big smile. And we kind of, you know, there was this really amazing warmth at that moment. And then when her function weakened, she stopped doing that. I would come back and say, oh, yes. But there was not, in a way, that whole thing that there was before. But what was interesting is when my niece brought a little pet fluffy rabbit, then my grandma would spend the whole day sitting next to the rabbit. And we could not take it away from her. You know, she had to sit next to the cage the whole time my niece was there. And my niece would bring the rabbit because it makes grandma happy. And why? You know, you would, you would think, but why the rabbit? And I think because in a weakening of her function, this is a thing she had left to actually love that little white fluffy rabbit. That actually when she was with it, I'm fairly sure there was that warmth, there was that feeling of relating, of being able to relate to that little being. When in a way, because of a losing of function, she could not relate to us anymore in that way, so much. And to me, that was very, in a way, poignant to see that, to see her with that kind of, that rabbit and how happy it made her. And I think that's why, in a way, 
this love, this relationship is so important. But what we have to be careful is how can we love creatively? How can we love when we don't grasp at the other person? Because I think the problem is not the love. But I think the problem is when we grasp at the other. And we have different ways to grasp. And one way is actually, I would say, spaciously. I remember when I first got married to Stephen and we came back to England together, I would stick to him. I would sit next to him at the table. I would sit next to him on the sofa. I would follow him round. <laughs> the poor thing. And, it, and until I thought, wait a minute, this is not very kind of, it's not very comfortable for him. <laughs> but more than that, it stopped me from developing friendly relationship with other people. So I think this is a thing when you grasp with love, you're actually kind of in a way limiting yourself and you're also limiting the other. And often I think this is because we have this uh, romantic fancy of the romantic merger. That love, it's a merger, you know. When personally, if I may be a little heterodox here, I would say it's like two parallel lines. It's two parallel lines, and so the two people together develop the space between each other. And of course, that can grow and develop. But outside of that, each of them have their separate space and separate relationship, separate life in a way, to cultivate. And I think this is very important. It seems to me a relationship love is more like that, that you go together, but also there is an apartness within that. And so another thing you have with love sometimes is jealousy or possessiveness. And in France, you still have crime of passion. And to me, this is a weirdest thing. When I read the papers, which I read once a week to see what's happened near, around the vi village and the kind of the county, and then there is this little kind of little thing about what happened. And sometimes you have a man, generally, who's killed his wife and his kid because he loves them too much. <laughs> and this, I think, is the weirdest thing. <laughs> to kill somebody you love too much. It is strange, that. That kind of possessiveness, that kind of, kind of total dependence. So that when you lose them, you have to kill them and kill yourself in the, in the process. It's kind of weird things with, when in a way, to me, this is not love. This is in a way possession. This is kind of, kind of this kind of grasping. This is this selfing. I think in that grasping, there is a lot of selfing, of kind of not seeing the other as independent, as other. Because I would say, in a way, love is care is respect, is appreciation, is attraction. And through all this, actually, you develop trust and acceptance. To me, this is a gift of love. The fact that you love somebody totally, you accept them as they are, that is a gift of love. But generally, I feel our love is conditional. I love you, but you need to improve this. I love this bit, 
but I don't love that. But how does it feel when we love conditionally in that way? You feel like, oh, kind of a little, it does not feel comfortable. So to me, in a way, if we, we need to love with this total acceptance, and then, of course, if there is problem, difficulty, we can talk from that place of acceptance instead of talking from that place of condition. If you don't change, I won't love you anymore. I find that very interesting, kind of conditional love. So in a way, looking at that, and I would say at that level, the meditation is not just, for me, this is not an inner. It looks like a very inner activity. We just sit there and nothing goes on, and also we do this in silence. But to me, we do the meditation in order to open our heart to ourselves and to the world, to in a way dissolve the obstacle to that love, to that compassion. Because I think all of us have that innate compassion, that innate response to suffering. That if somebody suffers, we want to help. We want to, to, to heal them. We want them to suffer less. We, want, we respond to that. We are not immune to that. And so I would say compassion is our ability to feel, to empathize, to connect, to open, but not only that. I think before that, you need to have the recognition of the other, that the other exists. This is, I think, one of the key of love and compassion is that there is somebody else out there to love, to feel compassion for. So actually, it's moving from this selfing, self-centeredness to what I would call other-centeredness. But when there, there is a middle way, it's not just you're totally kind of selfless, but you <laughs> compassion for yourself at the same time, equally to the other. And at the same time, I would say when we're compassionate, you could say we are grateful that the other is there so that we can open our heart to them. Because often I feel we have this superior compassion, I'm going to do this for them. But no, I think in a way we should be grateful that they're there. But also I think what is important is a availability that actually compassion is not just a feeling because you might not always feel like it. But actually the fact that we are available to the other. And in a way, to accept the suffering of the other and to be there for that suffering. And again, before my uh, grandmother died, I was, when I was there at home, generally every afternoon I would play dominoes with her. We would have about two hours. We would play dominoes and my mother could do something else and then we, I could spend some time with her and it made her happy. And this was in the autumn, so I was playing domino. I was a little tired too. And there was leaves in the courtyard. And grandma hates, hated leaves in the courtyard. So we would play and then she would, oh, the look. And there was five leaves. So she would kind of look like she was getting up, which she had a hard time doing. So I would get up, sweep the leaves, back to the domino. Then the look, 
There were three leaves. <laughs> so we get up, sweep the leaf, back to the domino. Then the look. Five again. <laughs> so I get up, and I'm sweeping these leaves, and I can see the mind gently saying, come on, could not I do something a little kind of more heroic or useful or <laughs> meaningful? Or... And then suddenly... This moment of incredible ease, of knowing that at that moment there was nothing else to do, just being with grandma and sweeping the leaves for her. And that's what I mean by availability. It is not what you want to do or what you want them to do or what you want it to be like, but it's what is necessary at that moment is that availability to the person and to the moment. And I think with, with, with that, then in a way with the compassion, we can have what I would call a creative wise response, a creative wise compassionate response. So the compassion is not just a feeling, I love everybody and I am nasty to my neighbor, but it is that you really actually, in your life, it makes a difference. The way you are with your neighbor, the way you are with your family, the way you are with yourself, the way you are with your friend. And that there is, to me, this is very important, this element of creativity. But it is true. Like, one of my favorite stories about that is this uh, monk, Thai monk, and Thai monks generally are not known to do kind of social work of any of that nature. But you have this young man who is in a village and is a bad boy because he's getting all the girls in the village pregnant. <laughs> and every time a girl gets pregnant, his family has to give a cow to the other family. So getting a little difficult. And so finally they send the young man to the temple, you know, if he goes to the temple, maybe they'll sort him out. So he goes off, and actually, he becomes a very good monk. And when he comes back, many years later, he comes back, and first they're a bit suspicious. You know, he was the guy. You know, he did this, you know. <laughs> and he comes, and he looks at the village, and he sees that he finds that they're very poor, much poorer than when he was there long ago, because of various economical reasons. And he thinks to himself, what can I do to help them? What is their main economic problem? And he realized that actually the main trouble they have is they have no way to take their produce to the market town because they have no cars in those days, no truck, nothing. And then he decides, I am going to do something about this. So... He goes and do a little training in engineering and he studies how to make a motor and cars and things like that. And he makes, he invents a truck in his temple, in his backyard. He makes a little truck which is very inexpensive and very easy to do. And then after that, then they can go and kind of, it becomes better for them. But to me, this is creative compassion. It's kind of just thinking, well, they're poor, too bad. It's their karma, but it's kind of, you know, what, 
what can I do about this? You know? And not in a way telling them what to do, but himself doing something about it. And what is interesting, he got a little kind of flag for doing that in his temple. You're not supposed to build trucks in the kind of backyard <laughs> of the temple. But it is true, also with compassion, that actually we can be overwhelmed by compassion. Because actually we can be overwhelmed by the suffering that you meet, that you encounter. And I think that's why it's very important that the compassion is wise and also there is that equanimity that later on in the week will be bring as one of the way of meditating. I think it's very important to remember that. Because when we go to, to South Africa, we go regularly to teach there. And we teach in the Zulu uh, country, where you have a lot of Zulu villages, which really are left behind. The Zulu villages are really left behind of the economic kind of improvement of South Africa. And so since we go there and we see what happens, we in our small way kind of try to help some orphan family or the school or whatever. And one time, last time we were there, our friends who speak Zulu, she said, oh, can you come? There is a family we would like to see, you to see, very much with a kind of understanding that, you know, if you see them, then you'll do something for them. So I said, of course, let's go, you know, because people had said, you know, the, this family, they, they're without resource, they're begging everywhere, you know, it's a little kind of, Somebody needs to do something. So we went there. And we go there, we enter the hut, traditional hut, and there is this old lady looking maybe 60 and looking totally depressed. And nothing in the hut apart from a kind of a broken kind of pot. And then there is these two little children, about possibly six, seven, and she's the grandmother of the children. And when I was in that hut, sitting there, I felt so sad. So sad that they had nothing, and also that they had no hope. But you could feel it. I mean, sitting there, you could not but be sad, because it was so bare of anything. The mother had abandoned the children, the father was not taking care of them and died anyway. I mean, it was like kind of they, they had no resource, nothing. And in that moment, you realize their hopelessness in a way and the fact that there could be, there are so many people in that same situation. So of course we said, of course we'll help. And so we get, gave some money because generally our dana in South Africa, we kind of recycle it. And so my, our friend did things like that to help them and get the clothes and tidy the children and and later we got a photo from the family, about the family. And it was a transformed family. The grandma actually was 50 years old and looking really young and very bright. And the little children were actually two girls and who could not go to school, but we kind of helped them go to school and very bright. And to me, it was kind of like, you know, their future was relatively hopeless. And just by the minute thing we did, suddenly they had a life. And so in a way, it is true that when we 
want to be compassionate, we can be in this moment. We can feel this very sad, depressed feeling because you realize what condition people live in. But to me, this is an important part of compassion. The fact that we feel it, but at the same time, we're not overwhelmed by it. We just are with it because that's what's going on in this moment. And at the same time, there is this creative response. And I'd just like to finish with this poem by Master Dogen. The way of the Buddha is to know the self. To know the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. Before I open up for questions or comments, I'd like just to answer one question. I got a little note. And this was on about yesterday, where yesterday I suggested you do the feeling thoughts. And maybe the way I presented it was a little vague, possibly. Because I don't like to be too precise. Because I like you to feel, kind of, is there anything? Because sometimes, you know, you're, you're kind of told to find something. You know, and sometimes you find it or not. I just wanted to see, can you feel the feeling thought? And so this person was saying that if they did not name the feeling tone, they could not find it. And if they named it, then they would be lost in story. (laughs) So what to do was a question. But to me, it is kind of in a way with the feeling tone is to try to be aware of the feeling tone at different level. But first to be in a way aware of the feeling tone here but without really naming it. Personally, I prefer just to to feel it. How does it feel? How is it? Kind of, sometimes it's quite at ease, sometimes it's a little agitated, sometimes it's a little kind of trepidation. And personally, when I'm generally often very aware of the feeling tone, especially if I'm going to possibly have a little difficulty or going to do something a little difficult or whatever, I check the feeling tone. And what is interesting is that up here, it feels a little trepidation, a little kind of agitated. But at the same time, around it, there is this spaciousness. And what I feel often is that here, lower down, it's stable. I feel the stability. I feel the openness. So in a way, I can handle having that little kind of trepidation and I'm not caught by the trepidation. I kind of, in a way, it's kind of, I am aware there is this movement, but I am not in a way caught by it. So what I would suggest is, in a way, to, to experiment with it. Because I think this, this it took me a long time to get the feeling tone, actually. <laughs> it, that's why I don't often introduce it, because I think it's very subtle. But personally, I think it's a good indication to kind of look a little and kind of notice how one feels at different level. So that sometimes you can actually feel agitated, but you do not need to be agitated. That's what I found interesting. And it's when I lose it. That's what I found. It's kind of when I lose touch with 
with the feeling there that generally I am in the kind of if I become suddenly irritated, I can feel something mounting here. And I think, okay, okay, I can be with this, I can be with this. And then, poof, suddenly it's, it's lost. It's interesting that moment where you kind of, then you're totally caught. It's like you're caught in the wave. When you are in the wave, you're totally caught in the wave and it kind of takes you all over the place. And then you can stand up again. So I don't have really a clear solution for the feeling tones, but the only thing I could say is to explore it. And even if you have a story, if you have a feeling, you name it, you have a story, just know that. Know that when there is this type of feeling and when you name it in that way, there is a type of story. I think that is already very good information. So, I don't know if that answered the question. <laughs> yes? In talking about parallel uh, love relationships, I wondered if uh, you and Stephen are in complete agreement on your view of Buddhism, or do you have some differences and still that's okay? Um, in general, we are relatively agreeing on most things, but not always. You know, sometimes I kind of think, Woof, you know, I mean, sometimes he gets into this very abstruse thing, and I think, <laughs> you know, I mean, but it, it, it interests him. I mean, it doesn't necessarily interest me, but I mean, I'm kind of always listen to it and see it. I mean, sometimes he gets, if he gets with a philosophical friend, I mean, I go and cook because it gets a little too much and rarefied for my taste. But no, in general, most, I mean, most time we kind of will relatively agree. I mean, we kind of of like mind. But I think that's one thing I forgot to mention, actually, is that in love, I think there is a certain influence. The parallel line doesn't mean that you are totally different. To me, when people live together, love each other, appreciate each other, they can be very different. Mm -hmm. And in one level, Stephen and I are very different. And at another level, in a way, over time, we influence each other. You know, some of his ideas, some of my ideas, some of the thing I do, some of the thing he does. Although, you know, we have our own things we do that we don't necessarily share. He loves to listen to music. Please renounce listening to music with me because I say, can you turn it down? <laughs> so, but you see, I think that the fact that you're not kind of grasping at each other doesn't mean that you do not depend on each other and you do not influence each other. I think this is very important. But it doesn't seem that, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to see eye to eye on everything. I mean, we have a major point of contention. This is about the house. He wants to kind of do something I don't want him to do, but the time when he do it will take so long that I don't worry too much about it. <laughs> but you see, but you, see it, you accept that the person view it this way, you view it that way, and you wait and see. That, I mean, that would be more my attitude. <laughs> So, yeah, no, I don't think that one, people have to kind of, you know, totally have the same idea, have the same interest and all the time. But I think they really need enough in between so to kind of, you know, have enough to share together. Uh, yes? How would you help a child 
this is children. It's interesting. They can be so self-centered. I mean, they're actually a great example of self-centeredness and grasping in action. You can really see it. I mean, you, I can see my niece. She can really be very, very kind of uh, show these two quality. So she's kind of improving a little. Uh, how can you cho- show a child? I think it's very difficult. I think you can only show it by example. And kind of by what I would call seeding. Like, for example, I, I, in general, try not to kill any insects, any kind of ants or anything like that. And my sister, younger sister, told my niece that Martin doesn't kill anything, you know. And so my niece thinks this is weird, you know. But at the same time, she takes it into consideration that actually this is something I do, something I have decided to do. And so she kind of, so it makes her think differently. I mean, she's still very afraid, but at the same time, she knows that I don't want to kill them. That already makes a difference to me. She kind of see, in a way, the insect a little in a different way. So I, I think it's, it's more like that. Or what is it that would awaken in the child that feeling? But not, but you know, to say to a child, you know, eat your soup because you know the Africans are angry, hungry. That, I mean, that doesn't work because it's too far. I think you need something which is kind of very close to them. You need kind of something that makes sense to them, and at the age they are at, and and with their own psychology and their own perceptions. I think you know, in order to be able to make a difference, one would actually have to know the child really know the child and see where, which, from which place, from which perspective could I reach that child at that level. And that, I think, requires a lot of awareness. That's all I can say. That, I think, is very difficult. But I think it's kind of, you have to play. You have to kind of see how you can play with it. Oh, sorry. Transitioning from children to adults, do you have any recommendations for cultivating um, the other-centeredness and compassion, specific practices, or do you think that sitting meditation is the best way to accomplish that? No, no, no. I think, I mean, meditation can help, but I think, for me, compassion is something that you do, is, is active, is something which is active. So I would say one of the first things you can do in terms of compassion is just cultivate listening. How do you listen to others? Just to, to see how we can listen. And actually, we are not there. We are doing the shopping list. Or we listen... And actually, we wait for the person to stop so we can say something so much more interesting. <laughs> so then we do two things. We try to remember the thing, and we try to wait for the silent moment. So we don't listen. Or we listen and we overreact, which, again, is not very helpful either. And to really, to me, this is actually the art of meditation and of listening, 
it kind of, whenever somebody talks, really listen to that person. And then when the time comes for you to talk, that I would think is a very easy thing to do, this kind of listening. Another thing is just within yourself to kind of, in a way, kind of try to dissolve a little the kind of the judging, the criticizing of yourself or others. So then generally you can be with others in a more open manner. I would say it's just the way we are with our family. Because often our, in family, we have very, very, I would say, solid, very kind of fixed relationship. Very interesting. And I would say there to bring compassion in the family is to see beyond the role of the person. To kind of see the person not as a mother, the sister, but a human being like yourself who wants to be happy, who don't want to suffer with our friends, to see how are we with our friends. Also, how do we respond to our neighbor? How are we with the postman? How are we, when we go to the supermarket, at the checkout counter? I mean, there are some very simple things which we can already not be what I would call an indifferent being or kind of very self-obsessed being, but we open to the world. Then the next one is to be aware of others, to be open to be aware of others. And then to see if they come to ask you something, to try to be there for them. Can I be there for them? Or sometimes we cannot. Or sometimes they ask something we can give them. We cannot give them, but at least we can listen, listen to them. Sometimes that's all they want, for you to be there for them. Or then, of course, after that you can do so many, I mean, as uh, Shanda said yesterday, the world is a place of suffering, so there is so many things you can do. But I think, in a way, we have to do what comes to us and also what we feel moves towards. The same, our connection with South Africa, we're still connected with some project in Madagascar, or like Stephen, for 10 years, more than 10 years, he was a Buddhist chaplain, and every week he went to the, chapel, uh, to the prison and he made... People were very violent, aggressive, or pedophile, or whatever. And just, you know, his practice of compassion was to be there for them. Be there not to condone their act, but to be there for the human being. So I think there is, in a way, the, the way of compassion are so, I would nearly say, infinite. So I would kind of look into this kind of widening circle, right around us and a little kind of further. Yes. Uh, your story about Margaret Thatcher sort of brought back a, a, a moment, oh, this was like a couple of weeks ago, but this has been going on for a while, political anger. You know, I'm just feeling I'm living in a more and more alien country run by people who are making decisions that are so fundamentally against anything that I think is the way to move. And I've actively worked with this but I realize it, I feel so worn down by it that you know this level of anger has seeped in and I realize I've just been walking around just angry so I just want to recalibrate that <laughs> yeah because you see I think what I think I've not told this story yet uh this is one of my 
this is one of my hero. One of my hero is uh, called L'Abbé Pierre, and he's a scrawny little monk, Catholic monk in France. And one time I was at one of these big happenings with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in France on peace and various things, and there was a little conference before the big teaching where there was various people of various faith and things, and there was my hero, uh, L'Abbé Pierre. And then, you know, everybody was saying things about peace and things like that. And suddenly, this little guy, i never seen him, and suddenly this little guy can really kind of... And he says, with this really big voice, he says, I am angry. <laughs> and I thought, ah, that makes a change. All these Buddhists who are never angry. I thought, oh. So I kind of really, I sat up. And he said, I am angry at poverty. I am angry at homelessness. And off it went. But the thing is that he is a founder of a big organization for the homeless. So to me, what is interesting is that he was angry. So personally, I don't think that anger is necessarily negative or destructive. As long as with this anger, you can do something creative. That, I think, to me, is a thing. Will the anger, you know, it twist inside ourselves and then be kind of entangled with our selfing? Or... Is the anger this kind of, in a way, this passion, this kind of energy, which then we can use in a creative way to do what we can do in a difficult situation? So, in a way, L'Abbé Pierre will never stop homelessness in France. But he's really made a huge difference in France since the 1950s. When at that, in those days, there was really nothing for it. And he's really kind of created, this little guy has created this amazing thing. So I think to me, this is a thing to be careful when we have this feeling, this feeling, to see how can I know the feeling and also how can I, in this term of political, social action, how can I use it creatively? Because you see, to say, they are bad guys, they are bad guys, it's terrible, it's terrible. I mean, it kind of, you know, release a little the tension, but it's not necessarily very helpful. And then if you are with all your friends and you say, this is so bad, this is so bad, they are so terrible. You know, it's kind of, I know it kind of relieve a bit the tension, but I think you, you can't do just that. You also have to see that even though, at the, I think the problem a little is that kind of the, the micro level and the macro level. I think it is true that at the macro level you cannot do so much, but the fact that you can still say, I don't agree. You see, I think, you know, that's what I think is good in America, that some people can still go and say, I don't agree with this. And I think it's very important that the people in charge know there is a, big, a bunch of people who don't agree. That I think is important that you know, they know that. And at the same time, I think it's important at the grassroots level to do what you can do for the people around you within your, your, kind of, your possibility. I think this is very essential. Otherwise, you just burn out with this anger because you feel totally hopeless. But I think just the fact that you say so is already something.
Because if nobody said anything, actually it would be even worse. So I think, again, we have to be careful, I would say, of uh, another thing which is a heroic fantasy. The heroic fantasy. You know, that I must really do something which really, really, really will change something. I think sometimes we can, like l'Abbé Pierre, and sometimes we can only do our small thing in our little corner. But I think this is already quite important. To me, that's what kind of reassures, reassures me about the world, is when I read, for example, Resurgence, and when there is all this little project in Africa, in India, where people in their little village do something. To me, that is very heartwarming. I, kind of, I have more hope with that than actually thinking the, whoever big organization is going in a way to kind of sort it, sort it out. Anyway, I'm sorry, I've, the time is up. So thank you very much. This talk was given by Martine Bachelor at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 25, 2005. It is an offering of the...